Welcome to GMI, podcast episode number 22. My name's Jed Brocky and welcome to the show. In this episode, you'll hear the second and concluding part of my interview with wet, wet, wet guitarist Graham Duffin, who has worked with the Wets for over 33 years. A quite incredible achievement by anyone's standards. In this episode, Graham will talk about his daughter and son-in-law's band. He'll also talk about his work with the Maguire Foundation to help people to overcome stammering, which can be such a debilitating condition. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I really would encourage you to listen to episode number 21 before listening to this one. For more information, such as video, images, soundtracks, etc., come over to GMI, the Guitar Music Institute, at www.guitarmusicinstitute.com So coming up is the second part of the Graham Duffin interview. Enjoy. Well, it's my daughter, Esther O'Connor, and her husband, Tim. New country, Americana, duo. Esther now probably has a back catalogue of about 150 songs. Her and Tim, in actual fact, are in London as we speak, talking to publishers who are seriously interested in it. And so they should be, haven't heard it. Now, you, you've you taken a big part in this, Graham. I can see you've done the programming, the guitars and the bass. Anything else on this particular... Back in vocals. Back in vocals Lots on the national part. Vocals. And I could really hear in, in the guitar sound and that, this country vibe coming through. Yeah, and yeah. Do you feel you gravitate towards that in your playing? Yes. Again, being flexible, it's a, a thing. I've always just tried to play what suits track stylistically, so I've got no problem in, in imagining what I would like to hear on a track and try and emulate that to the best of my abilities. So it's an interesting process. So who would you say your main influences are from the guitar playing world? In the country genre. In any genre. Any genre. Who were the guys that have had a big impact? Right back from Hank Marvin to Jan Ackerman from Focus. Steve Howe from Yes in the early days. I was like, oh, how's he doing that? That's a bit clever. And did you sit there with your records in the old days? I sat there with the records. Yep. Ruined many's a good vinyl by <laughs> constantly scratching it and going back over the same bit. How are they doing that? How are they doing that? That's something they don't get nowadays, isn't it? Oh, no, it's... it's uh, e, the old uh, days. Uh, uh, the old days. You had to know. fire up to <laughs> the record player. I know. Yeah, crank the handle up. <laughs> Shovel in the coal. But there's something there's something about that whole process. When I was in my twenties, I was doing this college course. In the third year, there was a ten thousand word dissertation with transcriptions, Mm -hmm. and I remember up until that point, not really understanding jazz phrasing, and just by the constant movement of that needle (laughs) over (laughs) forever, which I absolutely hated. Once the whole process was done, I, I couldn't really put it into words, but I understood that I understood mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. more intimately jazz phrasing. Yeah. And I think that's a great thing about our generation. In it a sense. is. Probably m- my two ultimate favourite guitarists are uh, Sean McLaughlin and Paco Dilluthia. I was cut up when Paco dropped of a heart attack. That's 66, I think it was. I've heard from 
But this John might not be so good either. No, he's retiring. Yes, uh, I heard that. Alzheimer's, I think. Which, ah, which is funny because, ah, really weird we should be saying that, because today I looked at something with uh, John McLaughlin on playing at Berkeley with some kids and that. That's right. And you look at all the uh, comments going down, and I knew what was going on. Yeah. And uh, I just, people really, this is the trouble. <laughs> if I can be an old man for a moment, Aye. this is the trouble nowadays. People just speak, and, you know, those those words are there. Yeah, yeah, forever, and they don't know what's no. going on, especially no. with an artist like John McLaughlin. For I know. Sakes. Yeah, I who's who was the best ever. Absolutely. So, Just, I mean, unbelievable play, unbelievable. That's uh, the duo, duo gigs of John and Michael are just breathtaking. Yes. Absolutely breathtaking. I see you're not mentioning the trio gigs with Larry Coriel. Larry Coriel's great, but... Sadly deceased as well. Yeah. Fast Al. Yes. Zumiola. So we've got to the bit in the interview now, which everyone's actually just been probably skipping forward I to know, it's a, Come on, come on, come on. Let's talk about guitars. How many guitars do you have, Graham? Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> I need he... to count them. The, <laughs> some of them are here, some of them are in a store. Right. And do you have a, a set number of guitars that you take on tour when you're working with the Wets? With the Wets, I would normally take my Red Moon Telecaster. To, it's a kind of a Les Paul Telecaster hybrid, but it covers it covers most of the sounds that I would use because of the rotary coil tap. Yeah, always uh, important to get that in. Get uh, Strat sounds. Telecaster sounds, humbucker sounds. What did you play so, on Love Is All Around? I played... Bottleneck Slide stuff was done on Graham Clark's Les Paul. Um, it was a black Les Paul with gold humbuckers. <laughs> Custom, I think it was. I think that's the... The other guitar, the acoustic guitar part, was that Loudon hanging up there. I've had that since 1990. Um, Do you remember how much that cost you? Um, it didn't give you it. cost me anything. The band bought me that because I'd introduced them to a guy called Andy Kidd, who was the MD at the Loudoun Guitar Factory just outside Belfast. And one time when the Wets were gigging in Belfast, I'd organised a guided tour of the factory for them. So... They ordered a guitar for me. That's that's right. that was very good. generous. Yeah, it was. Great. Thanks, guys. Do you really appreciate do it. Do you really deserve all this generosity? I know, I know. It's, it's incredible. When I think back on it. And so how many guitars would you take away with you on a, an actual tour? The Red Moon, the acoustic there, Moon Rickenbacker 12-string copy that Jimmy Moon, the guitar maker from Glasgow, made for me. Because it has a nice wide playback. I could never ever play Rickenbacker 12 strings. It was all too close. I think you have to be a mandolin player uh, to have any hope of playing that. And I've got my my slightly ridiculous but a practical solution to a very real problem of playing Open tuning, bottleneck slide, and standard tuning at the same time. A double neck. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, you laugh, but it's a slightly ridiculous, if very practical answer. 
can play double neck on the top. No, neck. it does no, work. No, I'm not the way around. I can play slide on the bottom neck and standard shooting on the top neck. I actually wanted to end this interview, Graham, with something that's not a musical. You have had to cope with, uh, I hope that's the right way to put it, um, mm. a stutter. Yes, and definitely. You, you probably age, noticed. <laughs> since the age of seven. Yeah. And you're part of the Maguire programme. Would you yeah. like to maybe... How, how, before you talk about the Maguire programme, could you just tell us how that affected your relationship with the band and PR and all the rest of it? Um, mm. It didn't really have too much of a major impact because uh, in terms of the public thing, because I wasn't really expected to do. Interviews. So you weren't you weren't expected to be up there. I wasn't really part of that. The main focus was always on the four guys in the band. So so you were never a fifth member of the band. I was. I suppose the closest thing would be to describe it as an associate member. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I wasn't under any contractual obligations or. And did that ever make you feel insecure? Not really, but I just, I never ever took it for granted. So, and I always really appreciated all the opportunities and every every new thing that came along. I was, okay, here's the, it's, it's somehow it's still going. And, and, and did you have to watch your P's and Q's then? Because if you fall out with someone, you could end up out the band. There was somehow an inbuilt, mutual respect there. Don't know if it was something to do with the age difference or but I was I don't think I was ever arrogant enough to think these are just young guys. I know best. I've been around longer than they have, etc. We always could work together effectively. I think it's a, a testament to you that no matter how good a player you are or anyone is to last that long with one band as an associate member is quite something. It's extraordinary to have had a career with Wet 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 spanning 33 years. I mean, that's, that's just crazy. It's like you're the longest serving manager in the Scottish Premier Division. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, yeah. we're getting off the subject. I'm always doing this, but fundamentally, you didn't need to do PR no. and all the rest of it. Well, we're talking about living with... Uh, a stutter. Is there an, another phrase for that other than stutter? Is there stutter, stammering? It's it's interchangeable. Yes, pretty much the same thing. So you didn't need to do the PR stuff. I tried. I, I mean, I got asked to go in and do an interview for a pre-recorded Radio Four documentary that was uh, being done in the. It must have been the early nineties. And the interviews included the guys in the band, the manager, uh, some of the road crew. It was quite an in-depth and varied documentary. So it was expected that as guitar player in the band, I would be interviewed as well. And my speech was so bad at that point that I could not string two coherent words together or sometimes I would be blocking on every syllable of every word. I sat there with the guy for possibly a couple of hours of torture and he was he was very nice trying to put me at my ease but the more I struggled the worse it got 
and they ended up not even being able to isolate one comment. I thought, right, I'll never put myself through that experience ever again. That was, uh, you know, you just really want the ground to open up and swallow you at that point and like, when's this going to be over? Torture, absolute torture. So that was interesting. <laughs> so the Maguire programme. Yeah, yeah. Went on my first Maguire course in 2000. So that was now 17 years ago. So who are? Dave Maguire. Dave Maguire, an American who stammers who now being in his 70s. But he, he tried all different kinds of, of speech therapy and he'd lost a good job because he wasn't able to to stand up for himself verbally and he'd, he'd got into difficulties with his speech, just finding employment and communicating socially. Is there any way linked to Tourette's? I don't know. It's It seems like completely at the opposite end of the spectrum. It's almost a kind of Opposite, but it's not something Tourette. that anyone who people who have Tourette's they don't want to shout and swear at folk or whatever happens. Just like yeah. people who have a stammer don't want yeah. to stammer. My take on it: uh, it's different. People will have different opinions, but my understanding of it, which I've accumulated over the last seventeen years, it, it is that it's habituated response to having learned. That speech is something to be feared and avoided, if at all possible. Um, it's very akin to any other phobic response, like a fear of hiders or fear of flying or fear of anything. Where your body and your whole system goes into that fight or flight response, everything tenses up, your breathing practically freezes and you're in that state of shock. Now, even perfectly fluent speakers, when they're faced with intense levels of fear, can't speak. So when it's speech itself that's generating that fear, it very quickly spirals out of control and because it happens all day every day so often it becomes incorporated and habituated the neuromuscular pathways become very firmly established one it wasn't like from the the word go you were stammering i read is that right you were no, seven that's years right. old yeah or that was when i became aware of it all right um, okay I, apparently I had been going through a primary stammering stage just in speech development where your brain's probably working faster than your ability to articulate. Now, if that process just goes on uninterrupted, uh, then most people just develop out of that. But if it's brought to your attention that there is, in fact, a problem here, speech is something that you should either be afraid of or avoid, then that's when the problems set in. How many people are afflicted with this? I think? Kind of average is out one in a hundred. One in a hundred. And when you yeah. think about the devastating effects that that can have on people's lives, in oh, terms yeah. of yeah, yeah, relationships... Yeah 
job opportunities. Yeah. Oh. Uh, it just it goes right through everything. Yeah. Are yeah, you was... kind of held up as a huge? I'm not saying they're patting you on the background, but are are you used as some a positive life example of someone who does have a stammer but has managed to overcome it and be successful whilst still having it? Well, I think that's that's almost inevitable. I, I, I had the privilege and the opportunity of doing a live TV interview last year, just during the West tour, and. I was interviewed on STVs this morning by Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby and doing live TV with a, a stammer is an interesting challenge. Especially having to face Philip Schofield. <laughs> he's great. I mean, he's, he's genuinely really nice guy. Put me at my ease and Holly's fantastic. Can you say? So the two of them genuinely really nice people, thoroughly professional. And I was very confident going into that interview. And I had I was properly psyched up for it and prepared and I think I handled it reasonably well. And what sort of impact did that have? Well it's it uh, got a lot of shares on Facebook, YouTube, all the rest of it. I, I just meant so. from people who have Difficulties in speech coming forward or looking for help or get contacting the Maguire contacting program? the Maguire program. Yes, I think it it certainly um, highlighted that help is available and it's not something that you need to be necessarily restricted by. That you can learn to communicate and not be totally frozen up. And how many? How many of these? Do you go and speak to? Do you speeches to these people? Yeah, the courses themselves are very intensive, residential four day courses run in hotels. I think there's eight courses a year in the UK in different places: four UK South and four UK North. So I haven't been on a course for maybe a year and a half or a couple of years. But it's always interesting being involved because you're thrown right into the situation. Uh, there's usually maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 new students and there's always a very good number of people returning to both work and continue to develop their own speech and help out as coaches one-to-one with the new students. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, very just, intense. It's you very can just intense. imagine, though, what it would be like, I don't know, not even 100 years ago, people with a stammer just mm. treated as second-class citizens. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm, what, I would like to wrap up this podcast by asking you, when's the next wet, wet, wet tour, Graham? Well, there was one planned for next year, uh-huh. which I was really looking forward to, but just the week after our uh, gig in Edinburgh Castle, we actually had three gigs, we had Rochester Castle, Hammersmith Apollo and Edinburgh Castle, and then following week I read in the paper that uh, Marty had left the band, so that was a bit of a blow. No tour next no tour next year. You, you don't think you could do it without Marty? Well, that's a kind of a <laughs> bit of a, I would say, 
<laughs> Probably not, no. Yes. And finally, what's do you have advice for young guitar players out there getting into the business? There's opportunities, but there's also huge challenges. I know. We don't know where anything's going anymore. Yeah, what think, would be your advice? I think you do what you have to do in order to become a professional player. What does that mean to you, professional player? Someone that can earn by playing in whatever. Don't be precious about only playing your own original compositions or by saying, I'm never playing in a wedding band because that's for losers or anything like that. Because you can earn very decent money playing in function band if you are great at it and if you market it properly. Which the number of hours you would have to work at a checkout or a or a shelf stacker, it makes much more sense to try and, and earn what you can as a player because you're going to end up, if you go for it with an open mind, you end up being able to pay yourself far more as an hourly rate than you could ever get somebody else to pay you. So that should, in theory, then free up enough time to develop the areas and the things that you are particularly passionate about. Um, in terms of the Ashton Lane project, which uh, my daughter and son-in-law, uh, they support the original material by also performing in a wedding band. And that helps to fund the original material. So don't be precious about it. And remember, it's the entertainment industry, which some people forget that that's what it's all about at the end of the day. It's entertaining people. My son, Esther's mother, he runs a wedding band agency. So he's he has some incredible players playing in the bands. I mean, real top... Top notch. Uh, yeah, top notch uh, session players. And it's weird because, the, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the, the the backside seemed to have fallen out of the wedding band scene, but now it's stronger than ever. Yeah. It's absolutely well, massive. Jamie has about 15 bands, handpicks the bands, and he doesn't just take on anybody. So he's very particular about his quality control. Well, I certainly wouldn't want the, the pressure of that 15 wedding bands out. <laughs> okay, Graham, it's been an absolute delight to be here. Thanks very much for your time. Um, I think I've covered everything I wanted to ask. I don't know if there's anything that I should have asked that I didn't, was there? Check out the, the Ashton site. I'll, I'll put the single link and the video link on your yeah. site. I'll send that to you. Yeah, don't worry. Everything's that we've talked about, uh, including links to the Foundry, the Maguire programme, Wet, Wet, Wet. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we need to put that up there, but we'll put it up there anyway. Absolutely. If well, only, like, only, only for that's posterity. That's part of the whole story, <laughs> isn't it? And do you have a website? Um, I don't personally have no, well, a website. No, well, there you go. Anyway. Uh, uh, there's a uh, Holland runs a hand site but yeah. I don't have anything to do with probably quite right so, you've never seen the misery movie you uh, don't want to be a <laughs> anyway so. so thanks very much Graham it's been an absolute pleasure a pleasure
Thank you very much, sir. Well, that wraps it up for another podcast, folks. I hope you enjoyed that one. It's really great when you have a true professional, someone who's worked at the highest echelons and done a lot of work in many areas. You can look forward to another podcast coming soon, which will be completely different. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to come over to www.guitarandmusicinstitute.com and see what we have there. We've got a huge array of resources for guitarists of all styles, all ages and all levels of ability. So until we meet again, or until you hear me again, from me, Jed Brocky, bye for now.